what are you looking at? Um, I'm looking at a follow-up. Oh, because we have we have an email from got a little, got a little fu today. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Here's, I, I stole that. That's yeah. that's from one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, go ahead. So from listener, this is an email we got from listener Dave. Oh, is this the listener Dave? It, it, would I be surprised? I mean, you've sent this to me. It's, it's the Dave that I know. Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, we both know. Um, but yeah. he and and he is a. It's a great email. He he's engaging with our engagement with uh, Judge Sutton's opinion in the Sixth Circuit in the marriage equality uh, case, um, and he points out that there are ways in which maybe Judge Sutton did a little bit better a job than we gave him credit for. Certainly possible. Um, and, and to be, you know, I don't, I don't want it. To, I didn't want to be too harsh on Judge Sutton as being irrational or anything. We had, I think, specific criticisms of that opinion. We you did. Know, and it's, um, I don't think it was an excellent opinion in its individual analyses, but, but, um, listener David had some very thoughtful thoughts about yes. that, I think. Yeah. Do you want to share any? Oh, should I read them? Yeah, you can, you can read a few. I mean, it, you, it, I don't know if you want to read the whole email or not, but, um, anything that jumped out at you uh, while, while you're looking, yeah. I also got some feedback that I didn't tell you about. Oh, wow. Why don't you tell me? Um, friend of the show, listener, Barbara. You familiar with listener Barbara? I do. Uh, I am familiar with her. Uh, of course, has no relation to anyone on this on this podcast. Says that we deserve a Peabody for that show. Really? Mm-hmm. That's, really? That was what she said. We deserve a Peabody for that one. Huh. Yeah, you keep mentioning these Peabody Awards. It's a little unseemly. Well, we're up for one. Oh, she's, she says again. She says we deserve it for that show. <laughs> she might be biased, Joe. <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> All right, what, what do you got? What do you got? Uh... Well, so oh, so one ahead. point he makes, which is a great point, all, uh, is that, um, well, it's it's a it's a it's a valid point, but I don't th- it, I think for, as to us, it knocks down a little bit of a straw man. So he's saying, look, the Brown against Board case, Loving against Virginia case, uh, it's it's not like they ended all problems of racism or racial animus or et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, weren't we trying to make heroes out of judges in a way that's unfair? And, and I don't think we were trying to do that. No. What I think yeah. we're trying to say is not that judicial review solves all the problems. Right. Rather, I think what we were saying is judicial review is certainly one of the problem solving methodologies that we use as a body politic. Yes. We, of course, have others and they're very important. And to the extent that Judge Sutton is pointing at uh, democratic reform democratically uh, achieved reform through popular election or legislation, uh, to the extent that he's pointing to that as a problem-solving tool, fantastic. That's great. Of right. course we want, we want to use all the tools we have available. I, and notice I said all, right? So yes. you wouldn't just take the judicial review tool and say, well, I'm not going to use that because this other thing is about, why not use them all, right? And Brown and Loving say there are, there's also the judicial review tool. The response, of course, would be that once you pull out the sledgehammer of the Constitution, you short circuit those other opportunities. And so you can't really use them all. But I think the response is that the the lesson of kind of Brown and Loving is that, um, I think, uh, that that they don't come first. They they follow on popular sentiment. I mean, some people say that, again, that the court tends to ratify existing social Mm. movements. Yeah. Or to provide some kind of mopping up function. And I think it loving is more of an example of 
of mopping up, which had, you know, huge benefits. It wasn't, it's right. not as though there were only two states or one. It was a significant mopping up, but there was a movement, right? I mean, and sometimes it's correcting a, a deep structural dysfunction problem. I mean, when you have, you know, um, uh, decades of Jim Crow, when you have uh, legislators in the national legislature right. uh, from the South who have an enormous seniority in Congress blocking as committee chairs some of the statutory resolutions that might assist. Well, there's a logjam there, and and it can be broken in various ways. And one of the ways it could be broken is a a court exercising judicial review uh, in the wake of a world war where people come back after rescuing the planet from genocide, and they and and not not stopping the genocide. Unfortunately, the genocide uh, happened, but making it stop at least, and, yes, and recognizing right. that yeah. it occurred, and that we have this huge problem <laughs> as a as a as a as a species, right? And you come back and you say, "Wait a minute, we're in slow motion exercising a kind of genocide of our own. We need to address this problem of right. apartheid in our own country, right. right?" And and if it takes the judiciary breaking that logjam as it did in Brown to you know upset the system enough so that it could work better um again i think that's using one of the tools that's available or or i'd point to shelley versus kramer you know the case that struck down racist covenants as a tool for private land use planning right that's a you know i've written about it it's a very difficult case to explain on kind of purely constitutional grounds without um a kind of complicated theory but it you know in terms of its importance like it you know it it, it took away uh, the uh, means for kind of continued private segregation and, right. and encouraged. So that's a, that's a court poking a little bit of a hole. There's, of course, the Massachusetts Supreme Court, which started this wave, right? I mean, right in the Goodridge case, uh, in and interestingly, applying the Massachusetts state constitution, right? And 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 um, so performing the judicial review function, but in a in a different context. Right. Um, yeah. And, and actually, it's interestingly, with Shelley, there was a California court case that had reached the Shelley conclusion much earlier. I think uh, another thing that's interesting yeah. about Shelley is that um, the, the court is also trying to cope, I think, there with um, uh, the, the notion that they don't want private actors to have to cleverly subvert or find an end run around something they had declared to be an illegitimate strategy for public means. So yeah, the, yeah. the Buchanan against Worley case had earlier held that the that you couldn't do this legislatively. Out, out, outright racist zoning. Correct. Saying all and the so, whites on this side of town, all the blacks on this side of yeah, town. And so now that we've yeah. taken that off, the now the court says, now that we've taken that off the table, you have found a way to, to up to apparently privately accomplish that objective. Right. Well, it isn't private. It's trying to do the objective that we just told you you couldn't do yeah. legislatively. So there's the court is trying to uh, protect itself from subversion of, a, of an undoubtedly a- appropriate earlier judicial holding. I, I am now restraining myself, Joe, because uh, from, from, from just jumping into the Shelley versus Kramer rabbit hole... <laughs> Okay. I've written. I will not link up my. But writing But you agree on this. with me that Buchanan against Worley is an yeah. early is oh, an yeah. important step in yes. the, down the road that yeah. leads to Shelley. Right. I mean, I wrote like seventy pages about this. So, you know, I, what, I, what I'm saying is, I, I'm I'm reluctant to join you in in I see. discussing further because right. we will never end. Okay. So another piece of feedback I have is from listener Dan, who just wanted us to know that 
Uh, he uh, listens to the show. It's part of his regular routine. I think he was the phrase he used. Or oh, his awesome. Routine or something like awesome. that. And so it's just great that he he feels like in a way we're 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 there with him in a sense and that's what we want to be yeah, yeah totally it's we, great i mean that's i love podcasts for the same reason like i feel some of the ones that i listen to regularly i feel like i'm like that's maybe this is links to the robotics idea right in a weird way um it, it it's it is people that, that's and, uh, the topic we're about to get to right yeah uh it's it is people you can you can relate to it as a human experience so even though i don't I don't know the people who do these podcasts. I feel like because I listen to them regularly, yes. I feel like they're part of my experience. This is Joe's Soylent Green theory of podcasts. They're made of people. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, but I feel the same way. Like you, you, if you – if a good conversation – not so, – so I listen – I love listening to Radiolab. I'm listening to this new serial podcast, which we can talk about maybe another time. Uh, and I like these well-produced podcasts because they're just super interesting. They you really know, are. I really enjoy them. but. Um, some of my favorite ones are the conversational ones yep. where it's like, these are people I kind of want to hang out with and just they're kind of your buddies. Now, it's a, it's a little fake because, of course, you can't talk back, but our listeners can talk back. Yes. You write to us. We're going to read it. Yes. Uh, oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. That's oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. But I feel the same way. I, 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 I love having that conversation right right there. So, so it's really I, cool to hear from a listener that that it that they enjoy our, our sort of madcap adventures and uh it's cool that, that, that we are for them what other podcasts are for us yeah that's that's really I like that a lot yeah and and in general so thank you listener dan uh and more generally than 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 that one observation um if you like the show and you have that experience tell somebody else about the show nice we, we, we got um we're increasing our listenership uh all the time you and can subscribe on itunes you could you could subscribe on whatever uh, app you use to listen to podcasts if you listen on your phone yeah, which is the best way? Like Overcast, for yeah. example, my yeah. favorite. My mom. Oh, oh, I was about to say, listener Barbara is sick of hearing us talk about Overcast. Yeah, she really secretly loves it, though. <laughs> Perhaps should we get on with this? Is there anything else? There, uh, there's not anything there's else. No. Let's let's. Uh, we have this is an amazing episode. This is a really good episode. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Robot talk. Should we should we tell people uh, who we didn't actually use his full name? I don't think on the in the episode itself. No, go for it. Uh, his name is Ryan Kalo. Oh, we didn't ask him. Maybe it's Kalo. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Kalo or Kalo. Um, he's he's a professor, law professor at University of Washington. The only reason we're hesitating, of course, is we know of my world famous inability mm-hmm. to correctly pronounce people's surnames on the first try. I love it. Although you got Mueller correct, Derek Mueller. I did. And you're again speaking into the Mueller mic. Yes. See last episode for the explanation of the Mueller <laughs> mic. Um, uh, but you know what we're going to do? We got to get in touch with them before we post it. And then I'll I'll post the correct pronunciation in the show notes. But but again, tell us what you think it is, Joe. My guess. Um, let me see. Back when I first encountered his name, I always assumed it was Kalo. OK, then it's almost guaranteed to be Kalo. Yeah. yeah, almost, almost guaranteed. Because uh, it, it's true. There is no Y in there. It's just C-A-L-O. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I think it's because of the one L, like if it were two L's, I would definitely have thought it was Calo. Uh, that would be Cayo. Oh, in Spanish, of course it would be Cayo, right, but uh, right. in English, um, it would be Calo. Right. Right. And if there were a diacritical mark over one of the L's, it would be Cajo. <laughs> I don't, I don't even, this is getting ridiculous, but let me tell the listeners one more thing. This yes. is a reason to stay tuned. At some point during the episode, you will get. A robotic recipe for barbecue sauce. 
so true. Not all the proportions are there. Right. But there's a, you may get some ideas. So listeners enjoy. Uh, so I was just curious, what got you into this question of robotics and the law? How did you, what, what drew you to that stuff? Well, you know, it, it was it was a kind of a, a, a almost foolishly simple um, calculation that that I made. So I, I was um, uh, an, a regulatory attorney at Covington and Burling in D.C., and I decided that I wanted to pursue academia. And so I did what so many folks, you know, nowadays do: is that I went to a fellowship, and I went to a fellowship at the Stanford Law School Center for Internet and Society. And I was working on, you know, sort of internet and privacy-related issues, um, but I just started to, sort of in the to to come across a bunch of evidence that the same institutions that had um, uh, bolstered and fostered the internet uh, seemed to be sort of increasingly pivoting toward robotics, which was something I've always been very interested in, but. It had no professional reason to be right, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so um, so I was receptive to the <laughs> to the idea that that maybe re- robotics was going to be an important technology on on par with the internet. Now, have you have you uh, always like tinkered with robots and yeah, like, you know, do you have a set of mind storms and stuff like that? I I, I mean, I, I have a I, I tell you, I have a four year old, uh, and I cannot wait. Until he's just old enough. I mean, um, yeah. and so, so you know, I mean, I, I did though. At the, at, when I was growing up, I had the um, equivalent of Mindstorm, uh, a lot of it. Um, and I also, you know, um, would program uh, in BASIC. And uh, I had a lot of uh, just sort of really, um, you know, goofy, simple robots growing up. In fact, um, there's a couple of Q&As with me where, where they, they – used a picture of me when I was like seven standing next to a robot that was about my, my height. That was like this ingenious, <laughs> ingenious thing where there was this platform that was remote control, but then it had an inflatable humanoid robot above it. And so you could inflate this thing. It was like one of those, you know, wobble weevils that don't, that, that don't fall down or whatever, yeah, and, yeah. And, but on top of a, of a remote control platform. And, and, and I thought that was the neatest thing in the world. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I've never, you know, been trained or anything like that, but I've always been interested. And so when the opportunity to write about it, and so having, since I was doing privacy work, the first foray sort of uh, into, into writing about robotics ended up, ended up being a couple of privacy pieces. So one was on privacy and robotics for a book, uh, a chapter, and then another was an online essay for, for Stanford Law Review Online that was about drones. And, and, and then I got kind of deep in the research over time. Um, yeah, that was a long-winded answer. Sorry. Guys. No, 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 no. That's, I, um, you know, I, I'm a total nerd and I love this stuff. And I, I, I coached my, um, my kids robotic team, you know, the oh, Mind, wow. Mindstorm robotic team for, yeah, cool. for a year and had a really good time. You know, this is the first Lego league stuff. Um, it's, it's just such fascinating stuff. And actually there's a guy at our law school who works there in some capacity who has one of these, um, uh, what's the name of the company? Is it Phantom Vision Two Plus? Is it Phantom? Is that the name of the company? I don't is know. The drone? Yeah, they, they make uh-huh. these these private drones that have these awesome cameras on them uh, that have um, I don't know this gyroscopic stabilization. So you can take like Hollywood style movies uh, and 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 they've been banned now. They've been banned from national parks, and I'm sure you're following all this uh, um, th- this drone law. Now these are maybe this is a good place to start because. Uh, 
people are kind of, I think some of this stuff is in the news, like paparazzi flying drones over celebrities' houses and, and the problems of, of basically increasing human ability to act at a distance and, and invade privacy. But there's an important sense in which these drones, which are controlled from, uh, you know, um, from some kind of remote control uh, unit, maybe even with a smartphone attached, are not the kinds of robots that you're talking about. Am I right about that? No, you're absolutely you're absolutely right about that. And and so um, um, I tend to think of robots as having uh, three essential qualities. Um, and 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 this is a there's no there's no definition of robot that everybody accepts, but there's a kind of uh, popular um, uh, definition that involves uh, the sense, think, act paradigm, which actually comes from human psychology research, but yeah. it's been it's been co-opted. Uh, and, 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 and it says that a robot has to have the ability to, to sense the world around it in some capacity, to, to process what it senses, which is to think part of it, and then and then to act upon the world in some way. And you know, a remote control drone that just has a sensor on it, um, and you fly it around and, and see what it sees. Uh, it, it strikes me as no different from a remote control car, um, right. and and so yeah. So I, I don't tend to think of that as being um, a robot. Now, now of course these things exist on a spectrum, and so a drone that you could that you could uh, point and, and click, um, you know, in the sky, like on a map, where you want it to go, and then it and then it autonomously navigates someplace, or or it has an autonomous mode, or it can land itself when it's in trouble, or avoid other obstacles without you intervening, uh, then we start to sort of move into the robot category. But of course, that's also true of a lot of luxury vehicles. They can do all the things that I just described right. as well, right? And and so, um, yeah, so I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, you know, it's, I would be hard-pressed to, sh- to show that that there's some, you know, up or down, you know, line, that you, you know, there's some bright line, I guess you could draw between, between um uh, robots and other technologies but but there's a there's a there's a pretty good sense of what 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 a robot is in a full yeah well, and the, and it's interesting the drone is maybe a good example because these new drones have uh gps built in and uh and, and so th- there's a part of them which kind of autonomously stabilizes the camera that's a very kind of weak form of of you know the kind of you i think you call it emergence rather than autonomy though right but um yeah, uh, but yeah, but, I the, do. but then the GPS. Well, so if the robot goes out of range, I mean, if see, I'm already doing it. If the drone goes out of range, and they can fly like a thousand feet in the sky, and the FC and the uh, FAA's FAA has some problems with you know. So this is going to be um, really interesting because they're they look super fun, right? But also problematic. But if they go out of range, it'll use the it can use the GPS coordinates to come back to where it started. So it has some, you know, autonomous capability built in, and yet it's it's not at all. I think, or I don't, I don't want to say not at all, but it's it's not completely um, emergent. Maybe in your sense, do I have that right? Your how would you characterize the difference between like autonomy and emergence, and and where would like the ability to go back home on your own fit in, even if it's in like a straight line and just the dumbest way to go home if you have GPS coordinates, say. Yeah. So, I mean, a, a couple of different things about that. Um, and I think the drone is a great, a great case study. So one thing is that, you know, the people that want to use drones, some of them just want to use flying cameras and other ones want to use robots. And that ends up being a sticking point in regulatory policy because the Federal Aviation Administration, in its interim report last year, suggested that it wasn't ready for autonomous flight. But the sorts of things that Google with Wing and Amazon, with Amazon Prime Air want to do, 
necessitate autonomy. Because if if you want to deliver things with with a drone, um, and you have to have a person that flies each drone to the house that's going to, you know, that person might as well get on a bike, you know. And so, <laughs> right. so in order in order for it to be efficient, you need to have these things be able to do these things to at least run. Uh, and have autonomous capability. Well, you, so, you, you would you would kind of ma- you, it would be more efficient if they could act on their own. I mean, we, there'd be some advantage to being able to fly a drone straight line rather than have to get in a car or get on a bike. But but the point is that like how much how great would it be for Amazon to be able just to type in an address and have these things fly over homes and and not have to think about them until they get them back again, right? I think that's fair for for some weights for 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 smaller. Um, uh, packages, there would be a clear advantage to uh, a drone over a bicycle. Um, uh, but of course, a bicycle can handle a much bigger payload. Yeah, sure. But yes, I t- absolutely take your point. You're right. There would be some efficiency, but not enough maybe to justify darkening our, our skies over Seattle more <laughs> than they already are um, right. with drones. You know? so, but but then, then you asked another question, which was, about about why I use the concept of emergence instead of autonomy, you know, there especially like that good question because I don't think I'm I'm careful enough, and it's something I I sort of wish I were were a little more careful with. And so what I mean there is that you know autonomy is just doing things on your on its own. Um, you know, one of those uh, birds that you that that you that, that kind of like you start it and it kind of like keeps pecking. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that's yeah. A, that's yeah. autonomous for for that task. Um, but it's not surprising. It's not surprising, and so so right, and so and so what I what I I, I don't like the word aut- autonomous because I think it's sort of over and under inclusive. It's over inclusive um, because it, it captures things like our bird that is that is sort of you know tapping and tapping um, or 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 a, or a lot of other things that just happen on their own. Um, but it's but it's also under inclusive because you know it, the, it, it suggests in a way that these thing that these machines are actually like exhibiting intent. And that they mean to do things, and they don't, right? And so, what I thought is more interesting from a legal perspective, given that we're law professors, is the idea that it would do something that was useful but unanticipated, that it would be surprising, um, and that no one, no, no human would intend for that exact thing to happen that exact way. Although a human did, of course, intend for something good to happen, um, and 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 so then that that to me complicates uh, uh, civil. And criminal law, for instance, and a couple other areas, and so it's the, it's the fact that it displays what Stephen Johnson calls emergent behavior, which is just behavior that is surprising but useful. Often, it's the product of simple rules uh, combining to create unanticipated complexity, um, and it's something that Stephen Johnson writes about uh, in the context of bees and ants, but also in, in in its utility for building complex software systems. And so that's why I use the term emergence to describe that quality as opposed to autonomy. Yeah, I, I think it would be good here to, you know, as law professors, I mean, some, one of the tropes about us, I guess, is that we get stuck on definitions and and we can kind of go down rabbit hole rabbit holes of formalism and and but I think that the the definitional exercise exercise here is is really important to your larger project, which is is asking the question in a really interesting way in these pieces uh, whether you know whether there can be like a law of robots, which is not. Um, uh, just a silly category of the kind that Easterbrook, you know, criticized as the law of the horse. So, is there is there something different about robots which requires a different approach to law, or as as you point out that Lessig has argued, 
a different understanding of the law that we have and its purposes. And and as to this like definitional um, point, it, it seems to me there there are there are several like this idea of emergence distinguishes like may distinguish not only robots from maybe not so surprising mechanical things, but also complex software from mm. not so mechanical um, uh, for, from not so surprising. Um, algorithms. Although uh, at least there, if if the software doesn't have the power to act, right, it doesn't present the the new thing in as pressing a, a scenario. Well, I was going to mention almost exactly that that uh, it, there are kind of two dimensions of distinction here. Um, like one is um, figuring out whether robots are different in kind from software, which I know it sounds like you've had some kind of debate with Cory Doctorow about this. Uh, yes, and, mm-hmm. and and then uh, but then also is there a distinction between uh, robots embedded with software and other kinds of mechanical things or human tools that requires some some uh, new approach and you know and 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 maybe we can just bracket and and you kind of mentioned it quickly and it could lead to a much larger debate about whether robots equipped with smart software lack intentions of the type that human beings have i'm I'm actually not convinced of that yeah, well, I mean, not. I'm, I was just asking. I mean, I'm saying I'm not convinced that that human beings have a kind of intention that that robots with software could never have. I mean, this is a debate about like materialism and right. consciousness and all that. So we're gonna we're gonna bracket all that at least for now, um, because I think uh, the, the papers that you have are 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 super interesting. Just on the, um, I, I won't say more mundane, but just on the definitional points of can we distinguish robots from other kinds of human tools. Um, and I think these two dimensions are really important. You know, one is in what way are robots different than software, if at all? And then in what ways are robots uh, different than other kinds of tools, if at all? And emergence seems to distinguish them from other kinds of tools. And the software point is the one, at least as I see you making it. And as Joe was suggesting earlier, it's the one that suggests, if I were to be try to be succinct about it, it's that the output from a tool called a robot is something different than just information itself. Yes, that's right. And, and uh, but of course, I mean, I, I would be the first to acknowledge that that that's a thin, that's a pretty thin line itself. And so we know that that we act um, by speaking, and information acts in in in, in all kinds of contexts. Uh, you know, notably speech acts, and um, and so and so. You, you know, for for me, what's important for the the um, this is like the act part of the definition, and then what I call embodiment um, as separate from emergence. So, if emergence is the capacity to do you know, useful but surprising things, which which I of course would be the I mean, obviously, software, complicated software can do that without ever it can it can it can create something that is that is just information that is that is surprising and and useful, right? That's um, why we well, that's why we play computer games. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and yeah, exactly. And so, and so, um, and then, but that's a separate facet from, from, from embodiment. And by embodiment, I'm really referring to, to sort of what the, what the, you know, electrical engineers would call, you know, cyber physical systems. And this is the idea that, that there's something that has a digital component. So it, ha- it has the capacity at least to be um, uh, just as promiscuous about data um, as a, as a computer. Um, but then it has a physical ramification. And so I end up in the paper sort of struggling with, well, what about uh, a comp- what about software that is organized to act upon the world? It's not merely providing information. It is, it is structured in a way to consummate a transaction. And, and, and one of those things, for instance, would be 
a high-speed trading algorithm. A high-speed trading algorithm is not a robot in the sense, you know, you can't see my arms, but I'm doing it. The robot moves, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. it, doesn't have, it doesn't have actuators, you know, the way that, that, that um, uh, you know, that, that some of these, that, that a PR2 or something does. It, it doesn't but, perform gross mechanical actions. Is exactly. Yeah. And, 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 so, and, and exactly. But, but it, does, it does act upon the world, and that's what makes it interesting. I mean, if, if all high-speed al- algorithms did were to generate um, uh, insights, like like for instance, take IBM IBM Watson. So IBM Watson is a very advanced, you know. I think I think it's fair to say that it's very advanced by contemporary standards approach to sort of deep machine learning, and and it helps doctors diagnose patients uh, in hospitals, and it and it can do it can play Jeopardy and everything else, right? So so yeah. it, it you know it, it does these things, um, and if it if it were and inevitably, of course, it will be if it isn't already. If it were deployed by by the Wall Street, um, you, we could ask interesting questions about what it was doing. So, for instance, if if IBM's Watson Watson were to use a bunch of information that it found various places that gave a trading firm what was essentially an inside advantage, so so using the using the mosaic theory of insider trading would constitute insider trading. The mosaic theory of insider trading, of course, is where you don't necessarily know some uh, specific tip that this stock's going to go up or down, but you know a lot about the company. And given everything that you know, you can put together something that if someone were to, within the company were to tell you and you acted upon it, it would be insider trading. And so that's like the idea of watching, watching all the executives, uh, you know, downsize their houses or, 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 or buy new houses. You know what I mean? And, and you yeah. sort of, and you figure this out, and so it could it could do things that were if a human being were to do them, um, it would be insider trading. But what I would say there is is that there's a human in the in the in the way, and, and so the human takes in the information and has to think about whether it's okay for her to act on it, and then she acts upon it, and then you can hold them account. But high speed trading algorithms, the whole advantage is the fact that they're so fast, or right. automatic web, you know, autonomous weapons is another example. The reason that we are moving towards these things is because they're so fast and they can act on the world without a human being yeah, it having like, to make a decision. Exactly. It sounds like the consequences – I mean it's, it's focused on the consequences to other human beings are not yes. intermediated by another human being. Right? Precisely. It, That's it, really well said. That's that is what I mean. And so and so it acts upon the world uh, directly without being – Mediated, so let me put you this. Hand. Let me let me put you this kind of problematic case, and yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and, and 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 again, I think it's. I want to emphasize. I think there's a use to this definitional exercise in terms of thinking about how the law evolves. But it is a standard kind of law professor game in a way that we're kind of interrogating the concept and trying to think of it in different ways. But um, but I think it's really it's not only not only useful but also fun here. And so so I want to do it. But so you know deep blue this uh, the the machine that uh, this was the one that beat Gary Kasparov right or was I forget sure. which iteration of it actually beat Gary Kasparov in chess right it's a chess playing computer yeah. um is is that uh hardware and software but basically a, a computer embodiment when what it does is output instructions but a robot if we attach to that huge machine uh, that huge computing machine um some mechanical limbs to move the chess pieces. Um, so, I, I, I mean, if if my if one of my students were to reply the way I'm about to reply, I would say that that student is fighting the hypothetical. But I did want to <laughs> note one. I did want to note one thing, quick thing about deep. So, I mean, I I, I talk about um, uh, I've I've talked to, to engineers, and there's one at, at MIT I think is really smart. A guy named David um, 
Mendel, I want to say his last name is, and he writes about um, autonomous systems, and he says, look, they're they're never really autonomous, and if they were autonomous, they would they would be garbage. And so, right. actually, what's happening is that it's people working together with the systems, and and he described Deep Blue as being really a, a team of people who know how to play chess, working with an especially great tool, and that that's the only way this thing was able to be. Yes, you yeah, know that, what I mean. And, yeah, and so, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but I also but, see but, why you were saying you were going to fight the, hyperthe- but <laughs> the I hypothetical. Hyper, right? But I fight the hypothetical. So the idea is, is, is it is it is it not, if you add a, 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 um, a arm to this thing uh, and it makes the moves, um, uh, does it suddenly become a robot? And and I think that that's a really great question for same reason I'm, I'm sure you think it's a good question, which is that it seems pretty trivial, right? At the end of the day, what, what right. this thing, what the function of this thing is to beat folks at chess, that's why it's a marble. It's not because it can, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, it, it can actually, you know, because, because those grabbing things, you know, that you, and, and bowling alleys that where you pick a prize out with a, with a, <laughs> a claw, right. you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. They can do that, right? No, so, no. And, and I mean, just, just to yeah. be clear, I mean, the point is like, if that's enough to change from a, to change the thing from a robot to, into a robot from something else, then it means the category of robot is not the important thing. Right. And, and we should be looking directly at like, um, um, the degree of action in the world caused by some software program. And that might be one salient feature of software as the, you know, potential of software evolves over time that should concern us, say, within cyber law or within computer law or whatever other area of law. And that maybe we don't need a new category because this idea of the robot as a distinct category is not an important one. That would be the most critical way to kind of frame yeah, the no, hypothetical. I, yeah, I understand. That. So, so I mean, so there's a couple of different ways of thinking about it. Um, one way of thinking about it is that there is an actuator, but it's it's us. Right. I mean, in other in other words, you know, um, um, uh, I, I wouldn't want to say that someone doesn't that that a that a um, uh, someone doesn't act upon the world who guides uh, the action of someone. You know, someone who is like um, um, a hunting with a hawk. Uh, we'd still say that they're hunting, even though it's the hawk that's actually doing the. the you, do you know what I mean? And yeah, so, so maybe yeah. so maybe and maybe in your in your hypothetical. Um, the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that is that Deep Blue is organized to act upon the world. It's organized to play chess. It's organized to do things, um, uh, and 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 that and that we happen to be the actuator. Um, I, I would I would actually say though that I don't know that Deep Blue is a great example of a robot, even with the arm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, because what I end up saying in, in the paper is that there's these, there's this phenomenon that are, that, are, that, that present a set of puzzles for the law. And, and I don't mean that they're the only robot related phenomenon, but they're the ones that I've sort of observed as being recurrent. Um, and that one of them is the idea of embodying data. And the other is this emergence. And the third is, is this idea of social valence or social meaning. And, and that to the degree that they're present, they present the problem that that I'm talking about, right? And so yeah. with with deep with deep blue, you might say it's it's really it's pretty domain specific. Um, its inputs are very 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 narrow. It, it may even not satisfy particularly well the sense component of sense think act because all it has is a set of coordinates and a set of rules, and, and the only input it's getting. Deep blue could, in other words, imagine instead of Doing, tweaking the hypothetical the way that you did, where you add a, an arm to, to Deep Blue, um, we just were to virtualize the whole thing, right? Yeah, they're both yeah. just playing in a virtual environment. Maybe they're far away from each other. Maybe they're just playing up on a big screen. Um, it already feels robotic at all then. It just feels like a domain-specific software application. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, 
want to convert all kinds of software into into robots just by adding some um, a trivial from the perspective of its functionality um, mechanical action attached to it, right? So, I, so I mean, um, um, if uh, if uh, if I, if, I, if I, while I was typing on my word processor. Um, there was this little hand that was like sort of writing, you know, I mean, it, it just, it doesn't at right. the end of the day really change the functionality, but I, but I, but I, but that's not to say I don't take your point. No. Yeah. No, um, I, mean, yeah. I, I don't know that that is my point though. I mean, I think that, um, because I think you've identified an important category. I'm just trying to figure out like exactly what it is and how much of it relates to physical action in the world and how much relates to our intentions that are expressed through the machine. And, and so another hypo that I was thinking about, um, actually just now as you were saying this is uh which is closer to something that the listeners you know may um are, are familiar with i'm sure and and may already have some questions about you know legally and these are self-driving cars which is you know a great example you see more about it in the news all the time um and, and so so one model of that is you've got a machine which takes in all of the inputs you know this is uh um thinks about it and then performs some actions uh, which you know produces informational outputs, but then those informational outputs are tied to actuators and other things that actually steer the car and brake and accelerate and all of these things. Um, mm. But you might also uh, imagine a system where, um, as a driver, you're wearing headphones and it kind of turns on like if there's a fog that you absolutely can't see, and it will tell you um, accelerate, brake, turn left, turn right, no more, no less, that sort of thing, right? And there, of course, the output of that machine is purely informational, right? But there's, um, if we design that system to work, say, in a heavy fog, there's kind of an intention uh, in designing the machine that its output be directly translated into movements without any kind of actuation, right? Um, and and I'm finding this confusing. So this is a totally different kind of car which has a human driver. Yeah. But the human driver is getting auditory right. feedback from the sensors outside the car because there is no visual feedback. So right. we've created this alternative. So there's a driver, right. unlike the, the driverless car. Right. Um, but there, there is a driver, but, he, but you're not using visual feedback. You're using um, uh, auditory instructions based on non-visual cues. Right. Well, th- yeah, the difference is that the, the car with the driver, th- what the computer is doing is is talking to the driver it's sending information to the driver and so there's a human being between the machine and the action and maybe it's using sonar because there's fog so it's oh, using some it other using way of assessing whatever what... sensors it, well no i mean it's it's using it's exactly the same as the driverless car but instead so it's, it has all the standard array oh, of so sensors it gps and it's... it's got all that stuff right. it's got all that stuff okay. and, but but instead of itself taking that last move of moving the steering wheel and accelerating right. and braking it tells the driver to do those things okay but um, and you can understand that it, you know we might think of that as software or just a computer in a scenario in which these were suggestions like watch out there's something ahead you might want to consider breaking that see that's software designed to aid humans in thinking about how to interact with their world right but if the, if this is a system designed to give very fine instructions in a situation where we don't expect the driver to exercise independent judgment then it seems like a machine and software which are designed to turn outputs directly into actions. And the only reason it's going through a human being is because we don't have actuators in this thing, right? So there's no – so I'm wondering, uh, you know, that's really the question. What's the difference between my machine uh, that sends audio signals to a human but where those signals are expected to be turned directly into action and a machine that um, itself drives the car? 
Well, so uh, again, a fascinating hypothetical. But so, so, so basically, what I'd say is that these things exist on a spectrum. Whether it's sensing, you know, you can understand having more than one input, having very, very little. Um, I, I, I do this hypothetical with, uh, or I do this sort of game, I suppose, with my robotics law and policy students, um, where I have this great uh, wind-up toy. And uh, I have one wind-up toy that you just wind it up and it just walks. And when it reaches, it looks like a robot, and when, but it's a wind-up toy. It walks, when it reaches the end of the table, it just falls off, right? Um, it doesn't sense anything. It doesn't, it acts, but only because it's just wound to do that. Um, and then I have this other really uh, funny little um, uh, robot that, that is, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's made in such a way that when it reaches the end of the table, it doesn't just drive off of it. Uh, it causes a, a, a mechanical thing to drop down and, and, a, and another wheel to, to, hit, to finally hit the surface, and then it, and then it moves away. It actually travels a, along the edge. And so it looks like it's, it has all the properties of a robot because it, it, you know, I mean, maybe it doesn't process, but at the end of the day, it senses and it reacts yeah. to that. And it's a very, 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 very simple thing that no one would want to call a robot. So these things exist in a scale. So what, what it seems to me what you're saying is, look, Sometimes a person, maybe this thing's going to be organized to act upon the world. It's going to be organized to drive around, to get around. Right. Um, but, the, but it's going to need a person to be its actuator. And, and I'm reminded of, of no, let's, take, let's, let's have it not be a person, but have it be an insect. And I'm reminded of those, um, those insect graphing things where they basically will graph technology onto an insect and then stimulate the musculature of the, you know, the skeleton of the, of the insect in such a way that causes it to move the way that they want it to move. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, and there, and there, I don't see any basis for saying anything other than actuation. Right. And, and so in your, in your scenario, here you have a, a, a human who is blinded by the fog and, and needs to rely upon what the, what the uh, system is saying. And the system assumes it's relying that feels like there isn't a lot of mediation. There isn't a yes. lot of agency interjection. It just happens to be that we are capable of moving a chess piece and we are capable of executing commands uh, from uh, an otherwise driverless car. Um, right. And a, a child could do it, even if they didn't have a license. And so, so for me, what, what you're really getting at is um, that actuation can take place through people and that that too is a matter of degree. And once you reach a point where the person can second guess, incidentally, this is an interesting inverse of the way that that humans operate machines and so if you take the mars rover or you take even a contemporary vehicle i mean a, a, a mentor of mine used to say that ever since anti-lock brakes when you would hit the brake on a, a car you're basically suggesting to the car that it slowed exactly. down yeah, and, yeah. And it's sort of thinking like oh i don't know maybe the condition okay sure i'll slow down and similarly <laughs> similarly when you when you tell operate um mars the mars rover um, it, you know, it mostly does what what NASA says, but you know, if NASA gives it a goofy command, or you know, some, or or you know, drive forward when there's a cliff, or if NASA has to figure something out and it needs to be moving around for some reason, you know, it's able to make those decisions on board, and so it's it's not fully remote control. So similarly, you know, um, I think what you're what you're pointing out is not that there isn't anything intrinsically different about robots, but rather that these things are are, are a matter of degree, one and second. That, that a human um, can be part of the plan to operate yeah. upon the world. In fact, there's a brilliant book that this reminds me of. By uh, it's called Damon. It's by um, oh crap. I, I, um, 
what is it? It's it's a hold on. I'm gonna find it. Yeah, uh, Daniel Suarez. It's, okay. it's called Damon. It's da- It's D A E M O N. Yeah, like a Unix Dan- demon or something. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and 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 what 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 it is is it's a story about um, a guy who just designs a lot of incredibly complicated software, um, a very well calibrated suite of software, system software, and it accomplishes things in the world in part through what we think of as sort of classic ideas about 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 autonomy. So there's driverless cars and things like that, but also just by like. You know, like calling people on the phone or emailing them and having access to money and then paying them to do something like we do with Amazon Mechanical Turk. You know what I mean? And so it accomplishes accomplishes things in the world on purpose, not by giving information to people exactly, except for to the extent that these incentives are, are a form of information, but actually tries to accomplish things by... You know, and I always thought that was interesting for the same reasons that I think your questions are very interesting, which is... Is that acting upon the world if you do it through a person where you're not doing it through the mechanism of giving people information that they can accept or, or reject um, and then they make a decision? Yeah. I, well, I, one, one critical way this could make a difference, of course, is when something goes wrong. Right. So hmm. if, if something if the car being uh, if the car in the fog with the human person who's doing the actuation, uh, if suddenly the fog clears and the car is still giving instructions. Uh, but the person sees that, you know, someone has fallen into the road, right? Uh, would we hold the person responsible for running that person over with the car? Um, and and I think the answer is we would. Uh, but if the fog were still there and they hadn't seen the person, obviously we'd be dealing with a different consequence. No, I, 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 th- I think that's right. But I think you'd, you'd, you'd ask a question about, so take your hypothetical, so, so using the lens of, of, of liability, um, in a system that is architected for a person to blindly follow the instructions of the vehicle, um, you know, there of course we, um, we 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 would we would actually probably be hard pressed to find liability for doing the thing when when there was in a sense no other choice. I mean, I mean if you you can contrast that to um, those cases that involve um, they often involve the First Amendment, but these cases that where they're like people are relying on information, so they they uh, they eat a, uh, they have a field guide to mushrooms, and they eat a mushroom that the field guide said is fine. Or we could imagine an app that you take a picture of a mushroom in a forest, and it says safe to eat, right? And then you eat it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So it, so it turns out that we can't subject that to, to at least to product liability and tort because um, it's not a product. It's just, it's information. So similarly, um, you know, I think of uh, of of people who drive into lakes because their GPS tells them to take a right there. You know what I mean? And yeah. so they want to say, well, you had a chance to to think about what you're doing and not do it. But but you know um, whether it's because the the way everything is set up. Uh, I mean, imagine, imagine what happens if, not that it, it's easy to sort of imagine liability, but imagine what happens if the, the, the human being who is helping Deep Blue beat Kasparov by moving the pieces, imagine if they just refuse to make the move or they move it to a place other than where Deep Blue set to go. Yeah. That, would, that would completely change the, the assumptions of everybody present and quickly break down. Uh, similarly, um, uh, you know, if 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 the person uh, you know didn't didn't sort of take the left in the fog, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, but, that, but that's your, what yeah. you're getting at is like our social understanding of the tool 
depends on how the tool is in fact used. I mean, product liability reminds me of like product liability for a, a screwdriver and uh, where, where if people always use it to open paint cans and you know that, then you're going to have a different attitude toward what it means to manufacture a screwdriver properly, right? Right, um, the, the consumer expectation expectation it, test. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is which is right derivative of the idea that, you know, uh, the law should be calibrated to um, how people actually use this tool, right? And um, uh, so, you know, I... I, I I guess w- one thing that I was thinking uh, as I was reading this is, and, and maybe you can tell me like what this picture of the world is kind of missing that, that helpfully illuminates this category. Cause I think you've, what you've done is you've sh- here is, is, is really shown me at least that there's a new category of legal problem that these kinds of tools are, uh, are bringing, are, are, you know, bringing up and we need to, you know, a consequence of that is we need to re-engineer law to aim at that problem. And the problem is I see it from, and, and maybe I'm just synthesizing these three categories, I'm not sure, uh, is that human beings have an intention to create a tool uh, where the expectation is that, is that that tool will serve, will, um, will have kind of its, will take on its own particular purposes within the general purpose of the tool designer. Mm-hmm. And those specific purposes and the uh, uh, will lead to consequences in the world that aren't uh, at a fine grain of detail predictable. You know what I mean? So whether there's a human being in there doesn't seem as material as as material as kind of the intention of the tool designer and our actual cultural experience with the tool. Does that make any sense? It, it does. And so, so I mean, I think that that perfectly captures. Um um, the the gist of what of the I, I think that that perfectly captures the puzzles that flow from emergence um, and maybe to some extent from embodiment. But um, I, I, I'm not sure if it's if it captures ev- I suppose everything I, that I'm thinking about with um, the social meaning require- part. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, there aren't other people reacting to it yet. In your scenario, right. Christian, yeah, there isn't yeah. there isn't the way other people interact with the with the robot with the tool. Um, it, which might be surprising um, for different reasons, right? Like well, like, they might try to save it, even though it's not. <laughs> yeah, in preference to saving. That something was the military that, example that, yeah. that that Ryan gave, and also another example Ryan gave along these lines, which I found really interesting, is the reaction to uh, the differing reactions that we just know people would have to the police officer who um, maybe shoots somebody improperly, as as you know, as much reaction as that does generate. Right. Um, still, the very next day, lots of police officers will go onto the street, uh, you write, Ryan, in one, in one of your papers. Uh, whereas if there were a robotic, you know, a RoboCop, and it shot somebody under uncertain conditions, right. we would probably take them all off the streets until we could figure out what was going on, right? And yeah. Right, you'd think of it as almost outrageous if that didn't happen. Is that yeah? And so you'd be that, like, dude, take yeah. those robots off the street. Well, that's the social well, meaning component. Do you think that is that's what is that is that the part that's missing from my story, Ryan? Well, but, well, let me. So, so I think I think that so, the social meaning component it, it is important, and, and 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 I think it is missing from your story. But let me let me say it another way that that maybe actually makes your makes your your account um, it, it bolsters your case. So for for me, what's interesting about the police hypothetical is the idea that. That, that imagine two scenarios where where police are, are using an instrument, right? So in one scenario, the police are using an instrument that is a gun, or or they're using an instrument that is a vehicle, and they shoot someone they shouldn't have, or they run into somebody by driving carelessly, right? Um, right. But my point that my point there was that the very next day, and in fact that day and continuously thereafter, 
uh, officers would drive cars and officers would carry guns. You see what I mean? Yes. But, 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 but if an officer were even completely teleoperating a robotic cop, that is to say the cop was, you know, just, and, and in fact, they do this. They do this in hostage situations. They do this in, 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 in um, they have drones. I mean, and so the idea is that the officers are actually just as sort of responsible in the liability sort of sense and legal sense are just as responsible for the actions. And they were to, and they, and there were to be something to happen in the community where someone were to get hurt. Um, you would not expect you would, you would be, you'd, you, in fact, you'd be surprised if we didn't kind of put a halt to the whole robot program for a little while. And what's interesting about that is it helps to isolate the social meaning of this technology. And, and because, again, there is no, it's not any more or less agency involved on the part of the machine than in, in the case of, a, of firing a gun or in the case of, of driving a car. It, it's still teleoperated, but it has a social valence, valence and social meaning to it. And so I'm reminded of studies by... Um, human com- human computer human robot interaction people that suggest, for instance, that that we feel differently about tasks that we complete with an anthropomorphic technology than we do with a non-anthropomorphic technology. So, so Victoria Groom at Stanford did these these studies where she showed that in a task that was you know where there's no sort of right answer or, you know sort of survival game task where there's no right answer that people would 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 use a a, a, a kind of a truck with a kind of a an uh, uh, arm on it or some kind of, you know, it was, it was very sort of, it, it just looked like kind of a truck and they would do this game with the truck. And then afterwards they'd ask questions about, you know, the responsibility of the truck and people would just say, no, I mean, I did this and I, I did the right thing. I did the positive thing. I did the negative. But if you, if you do it with an, and again, same level of human control with a, with a very anthropomorphic technology, suddenly the way people talk is that, they succeeded together or that it was a, the robot did a good job or, you know what yeah, I mean? And people yeah, yeah. suddenly talk and, and, and it has nothing to do with how much control. And so a court might be sort of hard pressed to see a difference, but a policymaker might see a very deep difference. And then you might ask questions about whether we feel that punishing uh, the officer um, without taking any adverse action to the robot would feel satisfactory to us. And then, and again, it's not that it's ex- not that it blows some huge hole in theories of punishment. It doesn't at all, but it does sort of make you think that maybe that we have this assumption in the law that, that isn't as true as it once was, and that maybe we need to now, now re-examine it. Um, and so that's, that's the point of those examples, I suppose. Yeah, that um, puts a new spin on one, one of the things I was thinking about with the officer example. Because I, I can think of two, react, two reasons why people might want to take all of the robotic officers off the street the very next day yeah. and they wouldn't have yeah. that reaction to the to the human officers and like one of them is just kind of um the kind of unjustified um you might even characterize as kind of irrational uh risk calculation it's you, you also intimate this kind of concern if like there are uh with driverless cars like the first really weird driver driverless car accident will be hugely salient even and there will be huge concerns even if we have like 90 percent fewer accidents right um <laughs> right. Be, because right. it's it's right. it's the it's our you know we, we attend to salient risks and somehow Ordinary auto accidents have been reduced to background for a lot of people. Like it's a background risk that we accept, whereas, uh, you know, some kind of weird thing where a driverless car takes, you know, 10 people over a cliff every year seems like a weird one. So I can imagine that with the police officer thing. It's just a, and maybe that's just a function of how many are out there, but it's kind of the same sort of thing where people, uh, or the same sort of cognitive bias where people might, um, have, 
you know, really great fears over the near, over a somewhat nearby like hazardous waste facility that in fact poses a, a somewhat small risk, but then hmm. don't attend at all to like lead paint in their own home, which is a much higher risk. And it just has to do with like the perceived salience of the, you know, of the risk and probably also control. Uh, you know, you have control over your home, but not, but that's, so to put that to one side for a second, the other kind of reason why people might want to take the, the officers off the street, the, the robotic ones, is a concern about the systematic nature of the defect, right? And um, so what's kind of, what what your recent comments made me think about was that, like, the degree to which we assign systematic behavior to machines could also interact with the degree to which we anthropomorphize them, right? Like, we mm. don't say, with respect to human officers, maybe some do, right? Uh, but But we don't generally say, after we see one unjustified shooting that, that that all cops have the wrong attitude right although you know that is a part of the debate is there kind of a systematic defect in police training that leads to unjustified shootings or, or right? even that that police officer would the very next day have the same problem right i mean we we, we have this notion of our own agency and our own freedom of action that leads us to not think that whereas if every one of those let's say there are 10 robots right and they all look at the same right uh, even if they all look the same anthropomorphically we might say well you know that mistake that just got revealed that that behavior that we don't like that emergent thing all 10 of them are going to do that well, that that's a concern about the systematic like yeah, we're, yeah. we're attributing like machine like thinking to them right right whereas if the more anthropomorphic they are i wonder if people would have a different attitude toward those robots you know that they that they would have the attitude of well that one so that was mitigates. just a bad model, right? Be- if, and, and the more complex their behaviors, almost the more unpredictable they are. Uh, maybe the more willing people are not to take the step of pulling them all off the street the day after one goes bad. It, maybe the more complex the machine, like if there's a very simple machine that ends up killing people for some reason, like there's some death, like the, no one's going to use it. But a very complex machine, like a like a Boeing triple seven. Right, one crashes and and they don't pull them all oh, that's out of the skies point. the next day. I, yeah. I, so I don't know how much complexity is at work here, how much anthropomorphization is at work here. It, it seems a really complex problem, but um, I don't know. What do you think, Ryan? Um, well, I mean, so I, I think first of all that that um, the fact that something is embodied or the fact that it, it displays complex, you know, surprising behavior, uh, each of those things contribute to our perception of, of anthropomorphic traits, right? Um, and so it's, it, you know, the, the fact that robots have social meaning is a product in part of the fact that they seem to mimic us in our existing in the world physically, you know, and also in our doing things that are not, that are, that are, that are sort of surprising and complicated, right? So there's a, there's a relationship there. Um, I, I'd further say that I, I, I'm, I'm, I myself go back and forth. I also go back and forth, let's say, uh, on the question of whether um, our tendency to treat systems that present socially as though they really were social, uh, whether that isn't just ex- just very very sim- similar to all the other you know cognitive biases that we're known to have, you know what I mean? And yeah. at the end at the end of the day, I, you know, I, I've also written um, some on the question of. Um, how how cognitive biases how we're sort of nudged for profit and and what um, how, what consumer law can do about it and so I've, I've looked at that literature and I, and I, I think it's probably it's probably similar one big difference though 
to me is that if you slice it, oh, it's just a cognitive bias, the same as as overestimating the danger because a nuclear facility is close by to you or something like that, or 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 not appreciating um, the optimism bias, not appreciating that a particular risk, how high it is actually for you personally. I mean, um, you know, all those things. I, I think the one big difference is the fact that I I think if you slice it from the from the from the uh, person instrument perspective, that this is the first instrument about which we have these feelings so strong. And so, so, at, so to me, it's interesting, for instance, that um, we make policy, we make laws based upon the knowledge that two scenarios that might be treated the same um, by people. And so, for instance, um, there, most jurisdictions have a law, or at least a few that I, a number that I looked at, um, have a law in place that says if you respond to a, a, a abuse of a, of an animal in a house, and there are children, then you are obligated to call child services because the link between abusing animals and abusing children is so strong, right? Yeah. And that's really interesting from a legal point. We are actually we're actually noticing um, uh, uh, the fact that the way people treat animals. Is is similar enough to the way they treat children that we're going to make a law based on, or we're going to make a policy based on. And you know, we don't. You know, if you're responding to somebody vandalizing something, you don't find out whether they have kids and then take the kids away from them. You see right. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But 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 if but but imagine that what's happening is that um, uh, there's a there's vandalism of something that feels anthropomorphic to us, something that feels like you know it's not. But it feels like um, that it's a like a, like that it presents socially like a person that has you know it, it's built on purpose to sort of tap into our our, our predilection to, to anthropomorphize. Um, imagine imagine the the abuse of such a system. Now there are repeated studies of people's unwillingness to do things like hold robots upside down and put them into closets and shut them off and all these kinds of things that where, where the robot is protesting. You know what I mean, and yeah. like we're not. We're, it's hard for us to do that. Um, hmm. It's hard, you know, and so and so, and, there, and there's just a number of studies. Like that. And, I mean, and, just, and I mean, do these show like even to a greater extent than people would be unwilling to mistreat a, an inert teddy bear? Yes, yes, absolutely. And so one 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 of my favorite examples involves um, um, actually involves a, a a Barbie doll, which people will hold upside down indefinitely. Um, and, 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 a, and an anthropomorphic robot that, you know, that, that presents, you know, ro- like it presents like a, like a robot that people will, will not, will not be willing to hold upside down very long. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. and, 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 and so it's, it's, and that's, that's, that's a study of involving, involving children. Um, you know, and so, and so the point of the matter is, is that it would be interesting, right? If we, if we suddenly had these objects that everybody agrees are just, they're just objects, they're machines, they're not living. There'd be the first non-living thing that we would that we would create a bridge to living things in a, in a legally meaningful way, and that to me I think is is important and different, and 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 why this area needs needs sort of separate treatment. It's, it's one reason that it does, and it has to do with the fact that there's this there's this assumption that there's a distinction between race R E S you know and, yeah. and 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 person, and that there's a difference between instrument and person. Um, that that robotics I think breaks down to, to, to a greater degree, at least than any previous technology and, and to an increasing degree over time. Um, 
And so, I mean, so, so, so th that's something. And then to go back to your question about um, whether sort of everything is captured by, by the uh, unexpected agency of the machine, um, you know, maybe we can fit it under that, under that umbrella, under that rubric. Um, if if we're we're also willing to accept that 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 our assumptions about how people will react to it will be the assumptions about reacting to an agent, like a human agent, yeah. you know, an animal agent, as opposed to just the way we assume people react to ordinary machines, and then and then then your umbrella point works better. I yeah, think it seems like a um, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts, but it seems like the uh, it's a, maybe a double edged sword. The um, the kind of deference to the supposed feelings of the robot by not holding it upside down because on the one hand you know maybe they treat it better and people are, are are better at interacting with those um machines in particular ways but but it also might displace um moral blame from the designers to the object I, you know just as an emotional uh matter you know what i mean um so so, so a machine like a, a robocop that goes bad like to the extent that it's more like uh it, it, it's more anthropomorphic i wonder if some of our kind of emotional moral outrage will be aimed at the machine itself and and less so at the hmm. designers right to an inefficient degree the suggesting th that the designer might even want to foster that misperception as a way to evade responsibility yeah and i've got this a possibility yeah and i'm just talking off the top of my head so i don't know you know you'd want to look at that whether the 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 moral calculus works both ways both that it, it, that the robot people like emotionally act as though it's an object of moral concern, but also believe it's an object which can be a repository of moral blame. And if we have a fixed store of moral blame, does that lead to kind of problems in our assessing risks and everything huh. with design of these? I, well, I don't know. That's just a hypothesis, but yeah. So, so let me just say that, 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 that is something I haven't thought about it in the terms that you're that exactly you're describing. Um, but I have thought about uh, uh, the, the context of, of medical malpractice and robotic surgery. And so we know we know from um, you know all the people that study this that that since accidents happen and, and things go wrong in medicine and not everybody sues um, the major driver of course of, of medical malpractice is is the relationship with the doctor right yeah this is really and, you should emphasize this because I think a lot of people don't know it and I've heard this because I knew an MD uh, JD who practiced in this area and cited these studies uh. to me it's a very surprise there the so, study yeah, he, let describe the finding here the, well, as i understood the finding uh. you tell me ryan fix this because uh because maybe i'm going to overstate it that there it actually is no relationship between negligence and and ultimate resolutions or even suit right that it has to do with um, some well, go some, ahead some go studies, ahead yeah some, some studies have seen have seen no correlation zero correlation um between the uh, extent of the negligence and the propensity to sue and that, and that, and you know what I mean. And so that yeah. people, just as you say, and so that people sue. And when, and when you actually debrief them about why they sued and, and what, it has to do with the relationship that they have with the surgeon or the relationship that they have with the doctor. And and everybody, and and, 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 and also just to bring in, and also how bad the outcome is, right? Don't those? Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, and how bad the outcome is, which 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 makes a lot of sense. But even with really bad outcomes and very good relationships, um, you don't necessarily see. Lawsuits, yeah. right? So unpack so, the nation of unpack the notion of relationship. What are you referring to? So what? So so every you know so we all know this in, 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 intuitively because we all know that you know if, when you go into surgery, every hospital in America now has this policy that the surgeon meets with you before the surgery and has a conversation with you, and then she meets with you after the surgery, 
she doesn't want to do that. You know what I mean? She's she wants to do she wants to do another surgery. You know what I mean? She right. wants to you know and, and so she doesn't want it. And so they do that because again, the relationship is the relationship between the doctor or the surgeon and the patient. If that person has, has talked to you, has personalized the experience, has explained, you know, you know, you have this sort of positive image of this person. You feel connected to them. You don't sue them. And that's why hospitals have, have policies in places like the one I described, where you try to foster better uh, bedside manner, so to speak, and better and better connections between patients and their caregivers. And so, so if you if you think about that in the context of robotic surgery, some of the some of the some of the robotic surgery we've seen a lot of it, and, and a lot of the action there, you know, they obviously they sue the manufacturer of the robot. Now, they, you know, people don't sue. The manufacturer of a scalpel when something goes wrong in a surgical unit you know what i mean and they don't yeah. sue the people that made the mask and they don't they, they, what they do is they they sue the the, the team and the, and the hospital that worked on them but people are suing surgical robots and so given the studies that i mentioned and connecting it to the notion that malpractice is um uh, medical malpractice is driven to a large extent by these by these feelings of connection you could imagine a sophisticated robot um, manufacturer and a sophisticated hospital having these negotiations as part of the as part of the purchase or the lease of the technology that you would not be able to anthropomorphize the robot. You right. can't give it a you can't give it a name. People can't see it beforehand. You cannot right. put under any circumstances put googly eyes on it. <laughs> You know what I mean? Because yeah. that is because because that in theory, right, could actually lead the, the the manufacturer to be not only named as a defendant. We all all of us who have done tort or teach tort know that everybody always names everybody they can in the, as a defendant, but actually be the one that the that the plaintiff decides to pursue right. and tries to make a deal with the other Mary Carter, another deal with the other entity, right? So e you could you could have, yeah, go ahead. No, I was gonna say even if anthropomorph anthropomorphizing the uh the robot the robotic surgeon would actually be better for the patient, right? I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. true too. Yeah, yeah. But hold on, yeah. which way? Uh, I'm confused now because I would. Uh, which way? Who wants the robot to be not personalized? The 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 the, the, the robot manufacturer doesn't want the robot to be personalized in any way. I would on this hypothetical because they don't want they want to be the scalpel. If you sue because something goes wrong, they want you to focus on the doctor who did the surgery. Ah, but I, you know thought, I, mean? I thought what you might predict huh. is that given that you, you're less prone to sue if you converse and interact with the doctor and come to see them as a, as a friendly and competent human being, mm. um, that, that maybe so, – so maybe what the robot manufacturer would be like, look – Anthropomorphizing is fine as long as you go whole hog on this thing. What you can't <laughs> well, do is do it halfway. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what I was thinking yeah, too. Right, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I agree with you. That's why I didn't think of that. But that's right. Like, imagine, don't, imagine don't a scenario where you, you design not just have googly eyes, but you've got to let them. Like, you've got to give it a name. We're going to put in a little voice. It's the Teddy Ruxpin thing, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to introduce Ruxpin, itself, yeah. um, and and like so that you really interact with it. But and shake your hand and everything. Yeah, that's right. interesting. No, I, I I agree with you. I mean. um um, yeah, no, I don't. I don't see why. I, I, yeah, that, that, that's right. So down the line, you could imagine, and you know, you'll see that with um, one of the interesting technologies in the medical context that you're seeing, one is seeing more of. You you have Watson, which is a, which is a diagnostic tool. It basically, you feed it a bunch of information that tells you the likelihood it's cancer. Um, but then you have these these triage kiosks that that, that hospitals are uh, uh, using, and what these things do is 
they, they, they greet you at the door, so to speak, and then they ask you a bunch of questions, and then they make a determination of how fast you should be seen instead of a, a triage nurse. Student. You know what I mean? Oh, mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, and they better be personable. Because, oh, my God, are you going to sue? It's some, you know, <laughs> sprint, early sprint, you know, Claire from Sprint or whatever her name was, you know what I mean? Like is, gets, is, 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 giving, is making you push a bunch of buttons and meanwhile you're having a heart attack. But this, you know what the, I mean? And so that's, that's a place where I could imagine uh, extremely, um, a lot of emphasis on human-robot interaction. But this also suggests an important, you know, thing to think about in terms of policy because all of these, you know, all of these any any effort which changes the nature of the robot, changes its form, changes its function, uh, changes its place in the hospital, or a refusal to use it, or any of those things which are only aimed at uh, channeling potential litigation or reducing it, is uh, unless there are some other benefits, deadweight loss. Right? It's uh, we would rather get rid of all of these things. Right? So th- the question is, I think par- partly like, what is the right answer? How do we want people to think about the robots which are mm. you know forming specific intentions and acting under the general instructions of their designers right and uh i was thinking about this just in just general tort terms too uh if you think about robots beyond the medical context um and this is you, you deal with this in the paper about you know what what is the future of foreseeability when humans are acting you know Every time there's a technology like this, it changes things. When humans can act more and more and more at a distance, where distance can be defined in time or space and or in quality, and here it's also in intention. Like the 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 action is 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 further and further from the original kind of human intention, but somehow framed by it. And what is foresee you know what does foreseeability mean there? Um, what does it mean for a robot to be? Uh, to go bad is it should you know if there's an injury call should there just be strict liability which is maybe the right answer anyway on just kind of general tort grounds or um i I just don't know how to think about intention in this context and and its role in policy right and and i think that's an interesting bridge too with criminal law too i mean and so um i mean i i think so right so so you know what, what i say about about emergence is that um you know if is, is that again? The, the the law is going to assume a person who, in turn, does foresee or could or, or should foresee uh, a particular outcome, and any tool that um, purposely does something that people don't foresee or do, do it in a way people won't foresee, and that that's actually really useful, um, is going to um, chat. I mean, it's, it's going to, to sort of diminish the utility of foreseeability as a, as a litmus. Right. Similarly, similarly, um, and, and, you know, often when I talk about these things, like, so in the criminal component, you say, well, so in, in, sorry, in the tort component, you might say, yeah, but we have, you know, we have this thing called, called strict liability. We could, we could use that, but you know, that, that doesn't entirely get you out of the problem uh, because of course, even in strict liability, you still need to have proximate cause. Right. And that's where, and that's where foreseeability rears its, its ugliest it comes, head. It comes back. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. and so, and so, so, I mean, even, even with strict liability, we assume that there's some person that, but maybe you just sort of step back further and you say, well, what I mean actually is, is a different level of generality. You put, you put into play some robot that you don't know what it's going to do. Yeah. Right. You know, it, yes, it, you know, you didn't foresee it's going to do that particular specific thing, but it's kind of like, um, 
you know, the, the famous case with, uh, where, where, uh, the hold is full of flammable, uh, liquid and, yes. and, you know, um, and so, I mean, the good so ship the, peerless, I think. Is it the good, good ship peerless? peerless? Yeah. No, is, no, is it, is it peerless? The one no, where it's the, not peerless. It's no, not, it's not. It's that not was peerless, two ships yeah. of the same name. This is, but it's the one where the, the plank makes a spark. Yeah. Or that's what I was right. thinking of, but I got the name is wrong. That not, I yeah, I, I, it's I, not I'm peerless. Because I'm, I'm a torch professor and I taught this cast not long ago. But the point is, is that, is that, you know, um, you know, that, that case, uh, you know, it's interesting because um, you know it, it says well you know the 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 general the general thing is you're transporting flammable stuff around and how exactly this the, the spark of the flame happened whether it was somebody throwing a cigar as predicted yeah. or or it was this this weird thing where the plank struck up a particular place and caused a spark at the end of the day like it was a fire risk. Yeah, when you know someone I mean? comes to you and says that the ship uh, exploded or burned down, you're not going to go. It did what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. exactly. You're going to exactly. say, "How did that happen?" Right? You're going to yeah, say, so, "How so, did so, it happen?" <laughs> so, so similarly, you know, you you throw some some chainsaws on on your robot and and, and throw it and put it out in, into the you know into the schoolyard. I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, like you know, if it, it may do something surprising, it might you know cut down um uh the, the, you know uh, the, the structure causing the kids to to fall out of it as opposed to actually you know get them with the chain. At the end of the day, you say yeah, but you put it you put the same place. But what what I think is really interesting is um, the interaction of multiple systems. Yeah. Because yeah. then you get you get behavior that nobody would have thought would have happened. And right. and w- one of my favorite examples, and it's simple enough, were that there was these two people that were rare book traders who had put into place algorithms to, to do pricing. And they, they basically were pegging it to their competitors. And so they were saying, <laughs> you know, charge a little less or a little more, whatever it is, and then so and so. Oh boy. Yeah. But they were but they were both doing it. <laughs> and as a consequence, there were these there were these really funny um this book that was about something funny like moths or something like that, and it, it, it was three million dollars. <laughs> and you know, and, and then you know, less funny, of course, are, are the and that's a simple thing. algorithm, which is just you know is, well, is complex in its interaction. Yeah, two algorithms, yeah. two simple yeah. algorithms, and then you compare that to the complexity of of multiple high speed trading algorithms, and then you get the, the flash crash. Um, you know, and you can say in a specific domain, yeah, but you know, now that that's happened, we know it's not going to. Now, if it happens again, you can blame people. But then, like, who do you blame? You blame anybody who has a has put into play an algorithm, and what are the characteristics of? So, I mean, even so. So, the point of the matter is, is that I often get this sort of response, which I totally understand. Which is, you know, first of all, we don't have to tweak law much to deal with this. Um, we, you know, and 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 maybe we could tweak law, but actually, we have a, a there is there is some doctrine we can apply here. You know, I don't know if it's reciprocity, I don't know if it's you know, whatever it is, right? Yeah. You know, and so, and similarly in criminal law, people say, well, I say, well, like you know, th- this it makes it difficult because if you go and do things, if you put a, an algorithm or a robot into play and it, and it does something that if you were to do it, it would be a crime. Well, if it surprises you, then you don't have the mens rea often that we that we want and people say yeah but you know there's there's negligence there's there's strict liability in crime yes there is but it's 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 not very privileged and we we don't we don't like yeah. to use strict liability right. right we but we use it for things like you know really really high stakes like statutory rape or really really low stakes like your tail light is out you think it's it's with, with robots it's the connection between the designer and the action which is weird right and the more complex the system the harder it is the way i was thinking about this is like the 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 kinds of injuries the more complex the system the kinds of injuries that can arise um are impossible to foresee but also impossible not to worry about 
You know what I mean? I mean, it's like yeah. if, if you have a system as complex as human beings, well, you know, goodness knows human beings are always inventing new and exciting ways to injure one another. Right. And, <laughs> and you just can never you can never predict them all no matter how. But the one thing, you know, when you design a, a robot with, a, with with complex software is um, that it will be unpredictable. Right. That does unpredictable, not in the not even, you know, not necessarily with with a in the pejorative sense of un, unpredictable in a bad way. But you know that there will be that, that. In fact, that's why you did it. Right. That's why you designed it as a robot instead of as a as a simple like linear machine. Um, and, and, and so there's that it, again, it's that attenuation of intention. Um, you know, I've got a general plan as a designer, but my general plan is for this thing to make decisions which are which are, you know, deterministic, but they are hidden by the complexities of the algorithm in situations I can't even imagine. And I don't really know what it's going to do in those situations. Take a simple, take a simple example, like, um, you know, Amazon spent, you know, $770 million um, buying Kiva systems, which is, which is basically robotic warehouses. Right. And, you know, the, the, the way that Kiva organizes an Amazon warehouse is different from the way a person would. And they put things next to each other that are strange and they don't set the temperature at the way that you'd think. You know what yeah. I mean? And, you know, and, and they, don't need, they don't need light and they don't need light in the same places. And so, and, 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 but a lot of the really interesting stuff is the fact that they, they use these um, algorithms to determine wh- what should be near what. And it's really different from how you or I, any, any, the three but of they, us would organize they, the Am- warehouse. Amazon used this for warehouses where humans retrieve things, right? They use it for for that too, and 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 but but the point of the matter is is that the is that the whether it's the algorithm or the robot, uh, that is to say whether the algorithm and, and the robot are separate or they're together, um, it, it seems that 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 you wouldn't purchase this company for all this money, or you wouldn't yes. bring to bear this technology if it would do the same thing a human would do, because then you just use a human to do it, you know, and right. and so the, the utility is that it's going to come up with these solutions that are different from from people, but then again. You know, that's also, it may in some instances introduce hazards. You know, I mean, I, I got, I have this barbecue sauce here in my office that you guys can't see, but I have this barbecue sauce that comes from IBM Watson. And what uh, IBM has this cognitive cooking project, it calls it, where it, hmm. it, 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 it feeds a bunch of ingredients, not literally, but it, it gives a bunch of ingredients and, 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 and some facets of those ingredients to, to the um, Watson. And then Watson comes up with recipes for oh things. Oh my God. Have you tasted it? I haven't tasted it. I I, I don't want to open it because I'm so excited about it. You know, I just like that. (laughs) (laughs) But I should. You've got to. Otherwise, you know, if you knew in advance you would never open it, you would not be excited about it. That's true. Right. Yeah, I, I really should. I should have a a, a party with. But, but anyway, the point is, is that, is that it, you know, it, you know, so it has, it has these ingredients, and the ingredients are not what you you would expect to be in barbecue sauce. I got to tell you. I mean, it's a bunch of stuff that you that you never give, think. Give us one. Give us give us one or two. Well, hold examples. on a second. Yeah. Let me grab. Yeah, yeah, sure. Grab. So 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 what happens? You know, if uh, uh, it, it it puts something in barbecue sauce to which some set of people are allergic, but as they've never had a problem with barbecue sauce before, mm, they don't think yeah. to look for it, like peanuts. You know, um, right. let's see. So it's got um, so so uh, butternut squash is one of the first ingredients, of course. Um, Not uh, match, as they say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, white wine, um, uh, lemon juice, tamarind, cilantro. Um, turmeric, uh, molasses. I mean, it's all this crazy stuff, you know. And and by the way, it's really it, cute. At the bottom, it says also contains. This is the ingredients. Also contains cognitive computing, 
IBM Cloud, <laughs> Big Data and Analytics. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you're and you're making me think that we should, as part of our show, we should call you every week, Ryan, and have like a a uh, cognitive cooking segment, like a recipe segment. <laughs> That's right, like uh, the a new table, recipe, yeah, exactly. robotic the recipes with Ryan. <laughs> um, I, I'd, I'd love that. Um, so, I mean, but but so the point of the matter is, is that you know it does things that are surprising. It, it advances cooking, I, I suppose, at one level. Um, but but it also, in, if there weren't good quality control by people, it could introduce things that would would actually be you know harmful for those people who are allergic. And so, I'm I, 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 unfortunately, I'm, I'm sort of not remembering exactly where I was what I was going with this, except to say that. Um, Oh, yeah. So with, on the criminal side or on the tort side, it's not that we don't have doctrine um, that could handle this stuff. It's that, it, it's that we would have to handle things. We would have to maybe systematize or scale up some tiny corner of the law and make it. So, for instance, we might have to have a category of crimes that are that, that when you do it by putting a robot into play, it does it. Not when you do it on purpose. So instead right. of like having, you know, specific intent in general, you know, and, and blah, 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 and negligence and recklessness, there's like a category that is like when you do it with a robot, you know, or, right. you know, or, or, you know, and, 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 and if that, and so if we were to use, or if we were to use strict liability in, in, in criminal law more, and we were to do it systematically across criminal law, I, I would argue that that's super interesting, just as it was extremely interesting for trains to occasion um, to, to to turn negligence into what it is today. It, it, when 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 trains came along, as we all all know from our casebooks, um, but I you know, but I've also independently read the, the sort of story of this. But I mean, when trains came along, it wasn't like we didn't have negligence. We had right. negligence. It just yeah. wasn't that important. You know what I mean? But negligence became extremely important because it was a way to mediate the um, tremendous, a, a way to sort of reconcile the tremendous advantages of people being able to get from one place to another quickly. Uh, and the obvious death toll, you know what I mean? It, yes. it, would, it, it, would kill, it would kill people that on the tracks, it would kill passengers, it would kill people who worked, it would, it would spark fires, you know, I mean, and so, and so that's, that's tough when you got something that's so useful. It but was this, so it was this like discrete legal mechanism for affecting large scale cost benefit calculations. Exactly, I mean, is that, and then yeah, and then now and now negligence is like the whole ball game. I yes. mean, negligence is everything, and and so and that's super really interesting. We all comment upon how that how that backwater doctrine turned into this to this dominant. And so, like, if if it turns out that some something is, exists in the tort law now that we don't think too much about. Um, effective control in, in race ipsa or you know what I mean? Like we just, yeah. we, or, 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 I mean, sorry, exclusive control in race, in race ipsa or something like that. Some, some little doctrine that we just sort of uh, all of a sudden blows up and that's everything now. And that's because of robotics. Well, I have to say that that to me would be really, really interesting and exceptional. Um, and so it's not that it, so sometimes people assume that I think that, that I'm saying something like, well, we, everything's going to change. We're going to need new laws. They're going to have to make up some new fancy thing we never heard of. I don't, I don't think that that's necessary for it to be extremely interesting. It could be extremely interesting if some parts of law in very, in very different areas were suddenly, suddenly hugely important where before they were not. Or, so, or that other things in law that were hugely important, like foreseeability, become a lot, lot less important. And, and what's interesting, it too, I think, is that like I've, I've framed it a couple of times now as like the, the new legal problem is like intention at a causal distance, if you want to give it like a bumper sticker name. Right. Mm -hmm. But then, but it also, in, in addition to intention acting at a causal distance through, through the, you know, lens of complexity, there is this social meaning component, which, you know, we can bring back into it. It's easy, it's easy to lose track of one of the three. So what I'm saying is like y your attitudes about liability are going to turn on 
the anthropomorphization of the thing or the use of the thing. And it's easy to have one of these three things kind of drop out and it kind of changes your approach to the thing. I don't know. It's Joe, you're going to say something. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. The, I think that, um, as, as Ryan's paper suggests, I think late in later in the paper, um, he, he mentions animal law, uh, some, this is the paper we're going to link up in the yeah, show notes. So, yeah. So some aspect. My guess is that there are a lot of uh, old English cases that are about uh, people using either other people, so sort of master servant cases, um, or people using animals uh, like dogs to shepherd uh, sheep and whatnot. That where we have these um, these questions of intervening causation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that make things more complicated, more interesting, more emotionally challenging. So I think we, the, at some point, someone's going to have to look back at those old authorities and and ask themselves, does this help me understand better this more complex kind of principal huh. agent yeah. relationship? Yeah. Um, I think another thing that is important about this, which I which I don't know that the paper explores, but that I've been thinking about a lot as I've been saying. No, you do mention it. That's right. You mentioned it toward the end, but but I think it's a significant. Um, something about robotics and the law that seems more palpable to me than than it does in many other areas. I think the law and literature movement, um, the way that we wind up exploring these questions about law through our own fictionalizations of things, I think, you know, movies and, and there's been a lot of storytelling in the last 150 years. You're thinking C-3PO right now. And, <laughs> and you're thinking that, you're thinking how short circuit. <laughs> can't forget, can't forget Steve Gutenberg's yeah, contribution you. to this. Yeah, thank you for yeah. mentioning some of the highest achievements of human art. Um, not uh, Johnny no, Five, Joe. W- Johnny Five. What I'm thinking is, um, you. So in the paper, you mentioned Robot and Frank, a recent movie. Yeah. Uh, but there are, um, I think, there are all kinds of explorations of, uh, including some that that take very sinister turns uh, that that express a lot of our fears uh, about out of control. Uh, agents and machines and other things. I mean, I think we've there, there's just been a lot of thinking already about uh, in literature uh, represented in film and in and in novels and whatnot, where we've been trying to grapple with and interrogate these complications of agency. Uh, we played a creative role in bringing about the circumstance, but the circumstance spun out of our control. And how did we cope with that fact? I just think we've been exploring this a lot in fiction, and we should look to that. To figure yeah. out how people dealt with the emotional uh, complexities of these uh, of these things that remind us of ourselves, but are but are emphatically not ourselves. I think that's right, but I mean, so so I, I don't know that there's a tremendous amount of um, of utility for us to jump all the way ahead to something like Isaac Asimov, right? Um, but I do think that what I mentioned before, like um, Damon, um, and uh, and also something like. Um, when the machine stops, um, I think that's a you know, Forrester story. Um, st- basically, stories where where we have over relied upon technology, or we have delegated too much to technology, and now we're not in a position to scale back. Um, I think that those are, are are really immensely important and interesting. Uh, and in fact, I just participated in a um, in a New America um, event uh, with Slate and Arizona State University in D.C. that was about how science fiction 
can help in, inform policy. Because, because I feel like my project as a, as a person who looks at law and emerging technology, I, I've developed something of, of a, I think it's too grandiose to call it a method, but I've developed a kind of an approach where I try to isolate what's different between this technology I'm talking about and then what came before, previous or constituent technologies. And then especially what new human kind of possibilities emerge as a consequence of that difference. And then finally, what assumptions of the law have that no longer hold, right? And so and, and it's not a method so much, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an approach, it's, a, it's almost a common sense approach. But I think what science fiction really helps us in each of those stages, it helps us understand and isolate what new experiences are now possible because of this change in technology. Yeah. Um, and that's, and it's, also why, it's also why I felt that it was important for this paper to bridge internet and cyber law with robotics law, because it, it, we learned a ton about this, about this approach, let's say, as applied to, we, we figured out what was essential and different about the internet. Um, and, and it did raise a particular set of questions and some of those got answered and, and many of them got answered in a particular way or, 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 or that we now see a structured debate around the, around the questions. Um, and, and, and robotics law is going to do the exact, exact same thing. And so is some other crazy thing that we haven't even started talking about. You know what I mean? And so, um, I feel like science fiction is immensely, also science fiction is important from the perspective of, um, what regulates? I mean, to go back to you know the new Chicago school, the code is law sort of mantra of cyber law. The idea that, which is not unique to cyber law, but it's the idea that you know you, you don't just govern with laws; you govern with norm, entrepreneurship. You govern with markets. You govern with technology. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that some of the so so in in the Brookings uh, uh, paper, I think not in the article, but in the Brookings white paper, I talk about this thing called cognitive radio, which is this idea that radios would be able to select the frequency and power upon which they operate. And it's very efficient because it uses the, the, the um, airwaves much more efficiently than they're being used today when radios are locked down or devices are locked down in one frequency. And so, of course, the FCC worries um, that, that these things are going to misbehave, they're going to not know where they are, they're going to trample on other people's frequency, and we're going to have problems where emergency responders you know, have interference or, God forbid, Verizon has interference in its network and so forth. And so some of the, some of the proposals that have come about to deal with that are out of science fiction. I mean, there's a Berkeley electrical engineering proposal to the FCC that says, look, you have these algorithms, and the algorithms that govern whether the frequency um, what the frequency and power should be. Those are proprietary and everybody can have different ones. And then you have this meta algorithm, which is like a super algorithm that, that finds misbehaviors and then nukes them remote. And that, that, and that that's really transparent. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. sort of like, you know, that's like how we got, you know, how we got Skynet by trying to use artificial intelligence to manage all the robots. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's so it's, it's right out of, it's, it's out of science fiction and, and science fiction can help us understand what these new experiences will be, but also maybe give us tools that we didn't have yeah, imagined new, yet. Yeah, yeah. New, regulator, new regulatory, not just new tools in society that we have to worry about their effects of, but new regulatory tools, which also have maybe unanticipated consequences. And uh, that's it's fascinating. fascinating. Daria, Daria Roethmeyer over at, I think she's at USC. Yeah. Daria, she, and, and so she's got this really cool project with a couple, um, I think she's written with a couple other people on it, um, that's about basically leveraging algorithms to regulate algorithms and regu basically using emergence to deal with emergence, you know? Yeah. And, um, hmm. and so, and she's of course a very sophisticated, careful scholar. And I, I very much look forward to her work product here. And, and I'm so, 
gratified that people are. I mean, I'm not saying she's directly responding to me in, in any way, but I'm, I'm I'm really happy that people I'll are say beginning it. I'll say it. She is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, you know, but but you know, she she and I talk, and 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 she's got this great, uh, really interesting project about um, that may that may have just sort of gr- grown up in parallel, but but that has to do with. How do you manage this complexity? And and part of the answer, it seems, is to is to use the complexity itself. This is a tool, and it's also a tool for regulators. Yeah. Well, let's. So here's the thing. Here's my fear. You wrote. So you've written these really uh, careful um, and methodical papers, and our conversation has been all over the map about this stuff um, because it's so interesting. And I think we can't help ourselves but to jump in. So anybody who's been listening to this and is like, I, there's so many ideas and I don't know, just read one. We'll link them up in the show notes, right? Read them both. So, so just read Ryan's, and, and there are more, but but we'll read read Ryan's papers and I think it will uh, satisfy the, the ur- whatever curiosity urges you have, which is, have been kind of um, scratched and innervated by this discussion, your, your urge toward order and understanding will be, um, will be met by Ryan's papers, which we will, <laughs> which we will link up. Absolutely. Uh, but man, this was a lot of fun. So uh, I really enjoyed reading, you. the, reading your work and, um, and, and talking to you. It's been fantastic. It's been super helpful to me. I mean, this is a work in this is this is a work in progress. I mean, it's not has not come out yet, and and I'm still in the revision process. And and I'm going to totally steal um, causal distance and a couple other things we talked about today. So steal uh, so, away. And, you know, my hope is my hope is eventually people will, people will eventually cite the show. That's right. I think I, I think we should, I, I, if, if nothing else, we should be the most cited podcast. Yeah, because uh, and, and, the and legal academia. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, although you need not, you should feel free just to steal away. I don't care. <laughs> I, oh yeah, you know, you know. One more thing. One more thing, Ryan. Um, uh, you're at University of Washington in Seattle, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I just have to tell you, one of the reasons I'm jealous of you is because um, I think robots are really cool. And you know, I'm working on a project which I really love, but I'd also like to be writing about robots right now. So uh, that's one reason. <laughs> the the other is when I was on the job market. And um, and I did not get a call from University of Washington interview. My heart just sank uh, oh. because it is just achingly beautiful up there. It's my favorite part of the country. So I am uh, I'm doubly jealous of you. Um, and I hope you're going to go like mountain climbing this weekend or something like well, that. Well, life is life is long, and it's still beautiful here. Just FYI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I used I actually used to go almost every summer when I was in grad school. We would spend uh, like six weeks up there, like climbing and hiking and and living in campgrounds and stuff. And uh, it's gorgeous here. Yeah, and it's and it's also you know I think pursuing what I'm pursuing it's a little offbeat. My my faculty here has been immensely supportive, and then and of course we're situated within a huge powerhouse research institution right i mean there's yeah. like five, there's like five robotics labs on campus here and wow. i'm in touch with all of them and, and it's really enriching because they keep me honest and i go to them and i say oh here's what i think and they go that that's not plausible here's how the technology works you know and it's it's just been a huge plus and it's it's definitely um um both sparked my imagination but also sort of kept me um uh, in, in check about about it so i mean uh, yeah, i yeah i love it here and, and i appreciate you saying that and and um uh, come visit. Come, yeah. come to come in April. We're having a robotics law and policy conference here. Is that We Robot? It's We Robot, exactly. So, yeah. so exactly, yeah. So, so it's the fourth annual robotics law and policy conference. Uh, it's organized. I organize it with um, Michael Frumkin at Miami and Ian Kerr uh, over at Ottawa, and um, 
and, and we have a great program committee of both of both roboticists and, and, and law professors. And, uh, and it's just a great event, you know, and, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And April is not quite as nice as the summer, but you know, the mountains are here. They're yeah. not going anywhere. And, yeah, I'm telling you, um, Joe, Joe, you and I should go crash this thing and do, and do, and do, and do a podcast. We should record an episode. We should record an episode there oh, in, in, in Seattle. Come be, media, you know, come be a media partner and come record stuff and put it, we'll, we'll put it up online and help you share it and, and, and you do the same. It'd be great. All right. Well, well needless to say, we'll be in touch. <laughs> <Okay>. thanks, <a> <laughs> thanks Th- ryan thanks a lot ryan thank you very much all right, all right. bye-bye